I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Excited to be in this Sermon on the Mount, and it is like a book of the Bible within a book of the Bible. Matthew is largely narrative and, uh, and the teachings of Christ, but uh, this section, 5, 6, and 7, is a, is a sermon within this gospel, and it gets very, very practical in chapter 6. Chapter 5 is all about peeling back layers of religious behavior, using the law as a cover for sin and license and, and sort of talking your way through being able to get away with things that God forbids and does not want us to have party to. And, and then chapter 6 gets into how to, how to practice righteousness in a way that gives glory to God. Uh, the title of this sermon and really a sermon series within the first 18 verses of chapter 6 is Consumer or Worshipper. Consumer or Worshipper. A year ago, it was natural to attend church more as a religious um, gathering where you come and you're perhaps tempted to be or actually acting as a consumer, a critic to go, how are things going on in the church and how's it going this time? And what did I think about church compared to last time or next time or compared to other churches? This is the consumer mindset where you show up and you say, what have you done for me lately as a church? And all of that is really a massive contradiction for the true motivation for why you come to gather at church. Christians gather for worship as givers, not takers. Givers, not takers. Worshippers rather than consumers. Those who are glorifying God rather than critiquing the work of what's going on around here. When you come with the motivation to give, all the critique kind of falls to the sidelines and who cares about different preferential dynamics or the way that one church does it over another. When you show up to church to give and you're able to give and you're able to give worth and value and attribute glory to God, it's mission accomplished even in your own heart as a worshiper. Self-seeking religious motivations are regularly that which God spews out of his mouth as that which is lukewarm. Meeting God as a consumer is akin to going to Best Buy and trying to find the new widget or product that you're looking for. And if it's not there, you go away greatly disappointed. That's 180 out from what it's like to come to God, offering yourself as Romans 12, 1 and 2, a living sacrifice. We're sacrificers. We're givers. The Old Testament Story is that of Israel being worshipers, those who either worshiped God rightly by giving or worshiping themselves by going to idols. Those idols are just mirrors of people's own self-gratification that they're worshiping by worshiping self. Romans 1 warns against those who, instead of worshiping God, who is revealed through the invisible attributes of God revealed through creation. We see God in that. People instead worship the creation rather than the creator. They worship creatures. They worship self rather than God. The ceremonial system was always built around bringing a sacrifice of worship and not just bringing an offering, a monetary offering like an animal, but bringing your heart to God. And that's what God does not despise, but what he 
receives. God is a recipient of our worship. We are the giver and he is the receiver of worship. And this gets inverted in a consumer's mindset coming to church. Revelation 4, if you kind of take the narrative all the way to the end, the vision that John sees from the island of Patmos, the vision in heaven of verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him, Jesus, who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast all their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Worship is what gives the Ultimate picture of the creature and creator distinction. We are the created. He is the the creator. And so the created come to the creator, creator with a gift of worship and homage and reverence and glory do his name. The word wor- worship is actually an old English um, derived term. It's melding together worth and ship. Anytime the suffix Ship is put with uh, the object before it. It's taking on that object as a state of being. And actually, it is a term when worth and ship are put together that is attributing um, something of value that is in in a state of being worthy. And so worship for the Christian can only be attributing value like that to God. God is the only object of worship. We are... Worshippers by nature, those who are unsaved, those who are unregenerate, worship themselves. They are worshiping themselves in self-gratification. They are even attributing value to things to reflect back back on themselves. When you're remade, you are rebuilt to be able to, by God, able and enabled to worship him, to attribute value and glory and honor to God. And he's the one who is due That kind of worship. Christians understand this reality. We understand it both in our private worship and in public worship. And so to bring it full circle, when you come to gather together, you come as worshiper, not consumer. The coronavirus has, or the pause on corona, where it paused churches from gathering for a time. As we regather, we regather with a different mindset, a different perspective. Uh, The idea of gathering for large building projects or to promote big gathering programs or events are not really in the forefront of our minds anymore. We're gathering to give. We're gathering to, to attribute value to God. We say, does that contradict my motivation of coming to receive a blessing? No, not at all. Being someone who is a giver is someone who is automatically, by giving in that way, a recipient of blessing. We do receive blessing. There's no contradiction between being a living sacrifice and a recipient of blessing. But there is a massive distinction and chasm between a worshiper who's truly worshiping and a consumer and a critic. Um, criticizing and being a critical culture is rampant these days. People on Twitter are always criticizing 
something, right? Social media is just a feeding frenzy for uh, being a YouTube rock star or, you know, a critic where you, all you have to do is criticize something politically or watch somebody do that, take one side or the other on an agenda or an issue, and you just go through the comments section and see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of critiques and criticisms and, and opinions that people give on the kind of new platform that's afforded them to give their perspective. Well, even news media has uh, found its niche, not just in trying to give news like it used to, just content. Now it's stirring the pot and always stirring criticism and where people have opinions or perspectives that either meld with the news network or contradict it. That's why people are watching it now, to, to be critics and Criticism is, in essence, self-worship, and watch this, self-consuming. It's being a consumer, but really, instead of consuming something, you're consuming yourself because you're constantly going to be left empty in a, in a cycle of emptiness where you're not satisfied with what you're critiquing and with what you are trying to solve and figure out in the way God made you. He made you not to be self-consumed, but to be giving value and worshiping God, to giving glory to God, not to self. And that is actually where you become satisfied and blessed. When you come as a living sacrifice and you worship God, guess what? Your heart opens and the blessing of heaven pours in. When you come as a critic or you come as a self-consumed person, a consumer or a customer in that mindset, it's like your heart is closed up You're speaking worship words. You might be praying worship words. You might be learning. But if your heart is closed, the blessing comes down and it falls off of you like like butter off Teflon in a pan will just fall off. Nothing stays. The worshiper is most of all blessed. But those who, who worship as Isaiah prophesied against Israel. They, they worship with their lips, but their heart is far from God. That's actually a heart-hardening effect. So you never want to come to church as a customer or a consumer. You want to come as a giver, as a sacrificer, as someone who is attributing worth to God. Well, Matthew chapter 6, it introduces the dramatic difference between a true worshiper and a religious person. Authentic versus a hypocrite. Look at Matthew 6, verse 1, just to get us started. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. There's many people who are play-acting their faith. There's an old illustration of someone who would cover himself with ashes As a symbol of humility, like in a third world country, he would sit prominently on the street corner where tourists would come up and ask permission to take his picture. So the mystic would rearrange his ashes to give the best image of destitution. Now, before we laugh too quickly, we need to self-examine and say, is this a picture of what we're doing or what we're tempted to do when we come in? To church, going through the motions, play acting our faith, acting like everything is just fine on the outside when we really need to be worshiping God and receiving blessing on the inside. 
Matthew 6, it's breaking down three different sections of or practices of worship. It's giving in verses 1 to 4, praying in verses 5 through 15, and fasting in verses 16 through 18. And let me say this, any cult does these three things. Any cult, any religion that's not even Christian will do these things. We'll give, we'll pray, we'll fast, or we'll, we'll practice acts of self-deprivation. I mean, this is religion. But what makes it righteous and true religion, what it makes it acceptable to God as true worship, comes down to one thing. This one single thing is your motive. Your motive. Your motive in your giving your motive in your praying, and your motive in your fasting or your self-deprivation. Consumerism is all about self, and worship is all about God. We can even have the right Christ. We can have the truest doctrine, the right gospel. But if we possess a heart that is not made right with God, an unregenerate heart, even with truth, is far from God. Is play acting, even in church. So we need to focus on the heart. I've used the word religion negatively as synonymous with hypocrisy and going through the motion or consumerism. But James 1.27 also uses the word religion as a synonym for living faith. It all comes down to motivation. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled. And that's where Jesus is trying to get us to an undefiled state. Before God the Father is that which visits orphans and widows in their affliction to keep oneself unstained from the world. Matthew 6 is Jesus' work of scrubbing the motive. He's scrubbing our motives and scrubbing our hearts in terms of our giving, in terms of our praying, in terms of our fasting, our sacrifice. Again, Matthew 7, 6 Jesus quoting Isaiah, well did Isaiah prophesy of of you hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips and their heart is far from me. Comes down to whether you're caught up in self-promotion or you caught up in Christ promotion. Well, again, we've looked at the layers being peeled back in chapter five. All the different cover-up scams that were where they were using the law. And Jesus says, no, this is the true path. Well, now in chapter 6, we're looking at true, and I'm going to use this term, orthoproxy. Orthoproxy. You've heard the word orthodox or orthodoxy. Ortho meaning straight or right or truth. And doxy, it means your beliefs or belief system. It's straight or true or right. Christian beliefs, that's orthodox Christianity. It's having true doctrine, doctrine based on the truth of Scripture. The general and normal beliefs, the verities of the faith are true. But then you have orthopraxy, which is the straight and true practice of those true beliefs. Orthodoxy leads to true orthopraxy or or right practice. This is the right practices of the faith, a faith that works. So if you're taking notes, here's a header for verses 1 through 18. Really, we're only going to tackle a few of these, but undefiled orthopraxy, your practice, breaks down into three practices, giving, praying, and fasting. So how do we get undefiled giving, praying, and fasting? Let's start with giving, undefiled giving. 
verses 1 to 4. Let me, let me read the section 1 to 4 together this time. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Jesus begins here in chapter 6 with a warning. Now he's, as the great reverend um, from our church, Pete Johnson says, he is shucking it to the proverbial cob at this point. Shucking it on down. Beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. He's talking to believers or those who are pursuing Christ on the hillside. He's preaching to them and he's just exposed the misuse of the law. And he's saying, listen, now here's a real warning for your heart. Don't enter into religious practices to be seen by others. You either have the audience of God or man at this point. Beware of making man your audience. You're not doing this for down here. You do what you do for God up there. It's an audience of one. Beware. Pay attention. This is a real temptation of parading your righteousness to be seen. And that word, be seen or see or seen or sees, is repeated in verse 1, 4, 5, and 6. Some version of seeing. That's what we're talking about. Who are you practicing to be seen by is the question. It's always man or God in terms of your audience. And you say, well, I'm a shy person, so this doesn't apply to me. I'm not a showman. I'm more reclusive. I'm behind the scenes. And so how does this apply to me? Well, this temptation is no respecter of persons, not showman or shy person. You say, I'm shy. Well, there's a subtle twist in this temptation where people will make themselves reclusively Um, reclusive choices and conspicuously absent in the name of looking holy. They want people to whisper about them and say, where are they? Well, they're separating themselves in the name of God and holiness. That's a version of man-pleasing. It's false humility. Using false humility as a cloak. Some will call this the fear of man, actually reverencing man instead of God. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Luke 12, 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body. And after that, have nothing more um, that they can do. Listen to this one. John 12, 42 and 43, Jesus says, nevertheless, Many even of the authorities, this is John speaking about Jesus, many even of the authorities believed in him, watch this, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Say, I'm not a showman. Well, do you love the glory that comes from man more than you love the glory that comes from God? whether you ever get up on a stage or not. That's the issue. Abraham told Sarah, lie, Genesis 12, 12. Don't tell them we are married. Tell them you're my sister. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this this is my wife, then they will kill me. 
but they will let you live. Genesis 26, 7 is Isaac, his Abraham's son, doing the same thing with Rebekah. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the, man, the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. This is the temptation of our age. I'm telling you, God is equipping us to be fearless, right? We have to be fearless in a culture that might become more and more oppressive on Christians and Christianity. It's time to act like men, men, right? It's time to act like women of God, like Sarah, and be strong, she repented of that lie. Remember Saul's fear in 1 Samuel 15, 24, he gave the unlawful sacrifice that he should not have given and he divided the kingdom and lost his throne. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. We need to not be man pleasers. We need to please God. It's an audience of one. This is what will scrub and purify our motives in our giving, in our praying, in our fasting, in our practice of spirituality, performing religious actions for man's empty applause is the sum total of what you receive. It's what you get. People clap for you down here. That's it. What do you get from God? Zero. Zero from God. That has nothing to do with God. When you seek man's approval through spirituality, it's an empty spiritual condition. There's no spiritual reward. And what's worse here is when you see the word reward, you should think of heaven. We're not talking about a blessing that you receive or do not receive based on how you came off in a prayer. We're talking about your state spiritually, your status if you, as a pattern in general, live for the approval of man in your religious practice or your attitudes or your action, and you pray so that you will be viewed as spiritual, you are in a warned position where, where Jesus is saying you have no reward with God. Often reward in the New Testament is really synonymous with heaven. I run the race for a prize, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, the reward, the prize is heaven. James chapter 1 says those who um, endure under trial in the end receive the crown of life. That's the laurel wreath of the crown that you receive when you cross the finish line going into heaven. What Jesus is exposing here is not a, a Christian having a bad day or a selfish moment. He's talking about someone who's blind to their own spiritual state, saying you have no reward. You're playing the life of the hypocrite. The hypocrite, hypocrites, is a Greco term, Greco-Roman term that was used for play actors who would put the mask on and they would, they would perform on stage. That kind of stage performance done in the church has nothing to do at all with God. That's the wake-up call of this warning. Rewards are down here on earth but have nothing to do with heaven. Hypocrisy is dangerous and something that Christians need to flee and run from. Jesus, in verse 2, is using sarcastic humor to illustrate what this looks like. It says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What's their reward? Praise from others. What's, their, what's a hypocrite's reward in terms of God? Zero. Goose egg, nothing. Nothing. 
If you're doing it hypocritically, you have nothing to do with God right now. You need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ truly. Well, what, what was going on here? Well, first of all, I don't want you to miss. Verse 2 says, when you give to the needy, when it happens. Jesus said, the poor you'll have with you always. There are always going to be needs that we as Christians give towards. What Jesus is pointing out is that we need to fight against the temptation for man's approval, even as a believer, when we give. We need to do that. But the hypocrite instead gives for the praise of man. And they're blowing a trumpet. What does that mean? Was there a literal trumpet that was sounded when people would give? Well, actually, in um, Jewish culture during this time, you would have religious leaders when they would see a need in the street, on the street corner, in a prominent area, or they would have a need come up in the synagogue where someone was infirmed or sick or needed help. They would blow a literal trumpet. And the trumpet sound would be almost like an ambulance siren going off or a fireman siren where everybody would pay attention. Everything would stop for a moment. Everybody would stop and see what was going on. Shops would shut down. Commerce would stop and people would gather in the religious community in the street square or town square or the synagogue on a religious stage. And they would watch this need being met and there would be a collective ooh and ah as the religious leaders would blow the trumpet and they would meet the need to score points. Points with the people as hypocrites in the name of scoring points with God. God has nothing to do with this. This is acting on stage. This is wrong. You say, well, how does that relate to today? Well, you know, unbelievers, many um, give to charities, and you'll see Hollywood actors who have enormous salaries, enormous uh, wealth, and they give uh, small minuscule fraction of that wealth, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars compared to millions, and, and they'll put it on a giant cardboard check and say, this is what I'm doing for this charity, and it's also a tax write-off. But anyway, that's, that's the kind of heart behind a moment like this, and you say, well, that's them, that's not me, I can't even do something like that. Well, we have to check our own hearts. Normal people are desperate for man's approval. They feed on it. This is to be rejected. This is what empties our own hearts and our own lives looking for approval. We're just not supposed to sound a trumpet before us. We're not supposed to look for the approval of others. Applause down here and not heaven. Well, verse 3 brings us right into the idea that Christians do give. Look at verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do it like this. Do it like this. This is the path. Don't be tempted to say, well, I can never give with a pure motive, so I'm not going to give at all. Don't dry up from your giving because you say, I, I can't do it. If you're tempted not to give, repent and then give. If you Give, the act of giving actually rewarms your heart. It like turns up the stove again in the pilot light in your own heart. And you go, okay, I need to give. And I enjoyed giving. More blessed is the one who gives than who receives, Jesus said. Well, how do we give? Look at verse 3. It says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus here is assuming that we are going to have those same temptations that the hypocrites have. We're going to have temptations that unbelievers have inside our own hearts. The right hand and the left hand represent our own self-consciousness. What Jesus is saying to do is you have to become unconscious of yourself as you give. That's the point. 
Your right hand and your left hand. In Jonah, we're going to talk from Jonah tonight at Worship of the Round. I'm excited to do that. I really pulled out um, some past research and I'm pulling it together again this afternoon. Did so on Friday. I'm, I'm kind of pumped more about that sermon than even this one, actually. I'm, I'm excited. But chapter 4 of Jonah... Uh, is where Jonah is sitting on the hillside and he's wanting the Lord, instead of giving grace and mercy to the Ninevites who had repented, he wanted God to drop a nuclear bomb on them because they had terrorized the people of God. And in Jonah four eleven, God answers and says, should, I, should not I, Nineveh, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, And also much cattle. What is he saying? He's saying that those people were so filled with their own idolatrous sin that they were completely unaware of who God was at all. Their right hand, their right hand and their left hand did not even know what the other was doing. In other words, they were completely unaware and wrapped in full ignorance of who God was. And so I am going to give to this generation, the Ninevites, grace and mercy. In the same way. We should be ignorant of our own giving practices when we give. What does that look like? It just means don't congratulate yourself when you give. Don't have an internal dialogue about anything about what you're doing. Just come to God and give. Say, God, I'm giving to you for your glory, and I'm letting it go with no strings. And I have no self-congratulation for that. You know, most likely you're not so bold as to seek, publicly seek man's applause for what you gave. You might privately do that with a friend or a family member or something and talk about what you've done. But most likely the temptation here that Jesus is addressing is the approval that's buried down deep within our hearts where we're congratulating ourselves or telling ourselves that we are right with God by what we just did. And God doesn't want that. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't let the right hand say anything to the left hand. Not at all. Don't talk to yourself about it. Verse 4 tells you exactly how to do this. It says, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Secrets. Secret practices. It's a giving that's hidden even from your own selfish motives. You don't dwell, you move on. It's in secret, it's hidden. It's not something people know about or are thinking about. All the Christian histrionics that we've seen over the years in cable TV networks, Christian networks where people are dancing on the stage and giving and passing out and all of that false drama and false humility is self-consuming, selfish worship. It has nothing to do with God. It's not selfless worship. It's emotional parades. It's consumers, consumers. Self-gratification, that's why it draws so many people, the unspiritually minded. Verses 5 and 6 goes into the next practice, and I want to touch on this. This is the practice of prayer, the practice of prayer for the believer. The same warning and the same path um, is given here in verses 5 and 6 by Jesus in terms of this second practice of undefiled orthopraxy, verses 5 and 6. Listen as I read it. Read these verses. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have, their, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. 
This is unpacking the second practice here. It's essentially the same lesson. These are prayers that God actually hears. These are the prayers that God actually hears. Jesus is assuming in verse 5 that you'll pray. He's assuming that you'll want to pray. Prayer is a spiritual discipline that is really authenticating for you as a believer. Um, Out of all the spiritual disciplines, it's one of the most neglected disciplines, but it should be as natural to the Christian as it is to breathe for a human. We should be praying without ceasing, synchronizing our wills with God's will according to the word of God, trying to mesh gears in terms of our desires, our needs, our conflicts, our interests, casting our cares before the Lord because he cares for us. It's a mark of Christian spiritual relationship an authentic relationship with the Lord, especially the prayers that are done in secret that nobody knows about, nobody hears about, nobody's grading, nobody's watching. This is the secret relationship that you have with the Lord in your own heart or in the privacy of your own time with him that is behind a closed door or behind a closed car door or, or a, a prayer walk that you take up a mountainside or on a journey or down a trail. This is the time with the Lord that you have that Jesus is assuming that you will have. And we have to guard against play-acting motives and doing it for show and doing it where someone would... Seek to approve you for your prayer. The hypocrites pray in a way that we should not pray like. They pray for what they love. It says, verse 5, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. They love to parade their speech or their prayer in a public square or in a religious arena. This is not prayer that God hears because it's rooted in selfishness. Self-love feeding on approval. I remember talking or hearing a, a person tell me about a preacher who told him this. It was a preacher who was unqualified. He shouldn't have been preaching at all. He had all kinds of character problems in the background. And my friend, this fellow preacher, was talking to him and was saying, why do you still preach? And he said, well, I, I love to preach. I don't want to give it up. And the reason he loved to preach is he loved the strokes that people gave him in terms of compliments for his preaching. That's why he preached. Anytime your spirituality is based on approval, it's wrong. Now, in this case, it says that hypocrites stand and pray. Is it wrong to stand? No, it's not wrong to stand. Uh, Jesus stood and prayed. The prophet stood and prayed. Standing can be a symbol of respect just as much as kneeling can be a symbol of respect to the Lord. Posture is not the issue. But taking a posture to be noticed is wrong. That's the point. You don't take a posture to be noticed. I knew a pastor of a pastor who when he would get up to preach, I would not particularly do this. And I'm not saying this in judgment of what he did, but he would literally kneel beside the pulpit and pray and seek the Lord's blessing before he would stand in the pulpit. Now, I'm not sure of his motive, but that posture just puts him in a very conspicuous place. And that's not something I think that I would want to do. Verse five here, it reveals the heart of the hypocrite. And the heart is that they would be seen by others. I'm praying to be seen by others. It actually hardens your heart. And it says that truly they have received their reward. They've received it. All of that prayer starts and finishes with what's being said. And it's as if there is a hard, unbreakable ceiling over top of those prayers that are bouncing off the ceiling and just coming down to earth. There's applause 
The person prays, takes a bow, and it's over. It hardens the prayer's heart, and there is zero blessing from God in that prayer. True prayer is, as C.H. Spurgeon put it, it's the slender nerve that moves the hand of a sovereign God. Prayer is powerful. The effectual, look at this, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, right? We pray according to the will of God, and God says, his will be done. We're literally synchronizing our minds with God's mind, and we're meshing gears where our prayers are actually being, being interpreted, according to Romans 8, by the Holy Spirit with groanings that are deeper than our words. And so we're praying things that mesh with God's will, and then God prayer um, answers our prayers, and we see amazing things happen that we never would have expected. We're, we're seeing above and beyond all that we could ask or think, right? When you genuinely pray, when you pray from a heart that's giving, a heart of a living sacrifice, a heart that's to give worship to God, Praying according to the will of God or the word of God, it's amazing. It's the difference between tuning in from AM to FM, from being in the natural mindedness, not to diss the AM station, but but natural mindedness versus spiritual mindedness. Be not drunk with the wine of this world, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 2, the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God, but as a Christian, we have the mind of Christ. We can pray according to the will of God, with the word of God. But let me just say this. I think the reason why we don't pray as much as we want to, need to, ought to, desire to, is we are unwilling to shut out the noise of the world and get alone with God and truly seek him in prayer. When we get desperate enough, we do. When, when, it, when the stakes are high, we pray, Right? When our jobs are on the line, we pray. When our health condition might be terminal, we pray. When we find out that it's terminal, we pray. When loved ones, we find that out, we pray. We pray for loved ones' souls when we feel like we really need to. But the discipline of prayer is the discipline of getting away. Shut off your phone. Put it away. Shut off the computer. Walk away. Get in your car. Drive away. Gear up, walk outside, walk away, climb somewhere, pray, pour your heart out to God. Let verses come to mind, quote them to yourself, anything, Bible, say it back to God. Put all your requests before him, but do it in secrecy. That's what God desires. That's what he loves. This is what is the most authenticating thing about you because you're praying to God who is invisible in secrecy where no one sees, no one knows, no one finds out. You're just with God. God knows and that's enough. It's praying in secret, carrying on the relationship of reverence with God who is invisible. Now what Jesus is talking about here is not going to a actual prayer closet, verse six, but when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. Now, you may have a designated place to pray. You might have a designated place to sit at a desk and have a quiet time, or you might need that. There are people who like to have a literal prayer closet. There's nothing wrong with that. Might be everything right about that in your own particular life where you shut the door. But the idea is that you're going away from the fray of life. You're out of the fray. Just with God, 
alone with him. Let me just give you permission today. Take some time with God today, alone with God. Alone with God. Just be with him. Talk with him. Let him talk to you. Hear his voice in your own heart as you meditate upon who he is. You say, well, I don't really know what to pray about. Well, it's the same thing as with giving. Just repent of your prayerlessness and start praying. The actual act of praying itself will warm your heart. One of the greatest practices that I was discipled to do in terms of prayer is saying the attributes of God to God. You say, I don't know how to pray. Well, start praying vertically and let the horizontal take care of itself. Fly the plane up first. And just go, God, you are great, you are mighty, you are good, you are holy, you are sovereign, you are forgiving, you're my rock, you're my fortress, you're my deliverer, you're my help, you're my friend, you'll never leave me, you'll never forsake me, you're my savior, my keeper. Lord, you are the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the first, the last, you're transcendent and glorious. I mean, just open up something on the attributes of God on your phone, a a list, and just say those things and quote verses around those things and watch your heart open up and you'll be filled up and you'll be lost in that discipline and that, that, that practice, but it will be undefiled because it's private. It's private and it's glorious. Then start praying for others. Pray for those who are closest to you. Think in terms of concentric circles, people who you love intimately and dearly your family your friends and just go out and farther and farther and then pray for your city and pray for your state and pray for your country and pray for the world something like that just have a plan and pray it's a stinging rebuke that one man i don't know who said this but he said i believe not one praying in a hundred in the church is actually praying to the almighty god people are praying to other men or themselves a stinging rebuke. It's important for us to understand that we need to be God conscious more than man conscious, theocentric, not anthropocentric. Why? Verse 6. Look at this. Here's what happens. You shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. He's there, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. What's the reward? The reward is the affirmation that you're a Christian. A Christian is someone who goes in secret and prays to God in secret and believes that God sees and hears what you're praying to him in secret. Reward is heaven. You're not earning heaven. You're just affirming this is is my faith. It's real. It's authentic. I know I'm a child of God. I know he's my heavenly father. I know he sees what what I'm saying. And sees what I'm going through and cares. And it's authentic within itself. That's the reward. The reward is heaven. Prayer practice in secret is what God sees in secret. And this is real. And it means that you are a real Christian. Real prayers mean real Christianity. Susanna Wesley, known as the mother of the Methodist Church, in the late 1600s was married to a pastor in London. Born to a family of 25 children, she married a minister and had 19 of her own. She gets second place, I guess. 
two of whom were John and Charles Wesley. Susanna was known for her discipline in prayer and when she carved and where she carved hours of praying into her life and she could sometimes not find a room to retreat to. These children were everywhere and the children would watch her flip her apron up over her head and she would pray. That was her shutdown mechanism. I'm going to go into secrecy right now, flipping the apron over. The question is, are you a consumer or are you a worshiper? Are you self-consumed or are you self-emptying? When you give or serve, here's a question. Are you concerned with what others think about what you're giving or what you're doing or how often or how much? They might not know how much, but are you concerned with what others think? When you sing, are you concerned with the level of your expression when you sing? Are you comparing yourself to your neighbor when you sing? When you fellowship, when you talk to other Christians, are you concerned to sound more with it spiritually than you really are at that moment or at that time? All these are temptations. And all these temptations can be checked in one way. Go back to the source of giving. The ultimate source of giving is God. God is the ultimate gift-giving God. He gave the greatest example of giving by giving his son. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he, what? Gave. He gave Christ to us. Jesus gave himself. Took on the form of a servant. He laid his life down as a sacrifice. And this sacrifice is a gift which gives you and me the gift called eternal life. Common grace giving is what we all always receive. We praise the Lord for food, clothing, shelter. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust and the sun to shine on the good and the evil. Matthew five forty five. we learned about that. At the end of Matthew 6, what we shall eat, what we shall drink, what we shall wear, it's all covered in the day-to-day and God promises our day-to-day to be covered so we give him worth. But James 1, 17 and 18, listen to this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. The God who is in charge of the solar system and all the luminaries in the sky is raining down gifts upon us all the time. There's no variation or shadow that is shifting due to change. Of this, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. What's better than God meeting our day to day is the fact that he brought you forth by the word of truth. You're saved. We thank the Lord because we're saved. God is the ultimate giver. When our hearts grow cold, we have to go back to God, who is the ultimate gift giving God. He brought us forth as the first fruits of his creatures. He, he made us clean and pure and provides for us every day. It's the difference between being a consumer and a worshiper. The ultimate consumer and ultimate worshiper of the Old Testament, I think, might be depicted in two people, King Saul and King David. Do you remember King Saul? He was, he was nominated to be Israel's first king, and he was ultimately nominated for his outward appearance, and David was anointed as king because God looked at his heart. For Samuel 9, I'll end here, there was a man, Benjamin, who was the father of Saul. He was a man of wealth. Verse 2, he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. That's why the people nominated him. First Samuel 16, later in verse 5, it says, um, Samuel had come to consecrate David. He came under the cloak of offering a sacrifice. He came to Bethlehem and to um, the family under Jesse. It says, and he consecrated Jesse and his sons 
and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked and Eliab, on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord, here it is, here's the language, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David was called a man after God's own heart. First Samuel sixteen eleven. Then Samuel said to Jesse, "Are all your sons here?" And he said, "There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep." And Samuel said to Jesse, "Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes." <laughs> 